Hello you, and welcome to Change Your Relationship with Food, the podcast hosted by me, Kyla Holly. With many years' experience as an eating disorder and bariatric therapist, I know exactly what it takes to help you break free from your diet history and develop a more healthy relationship with food. Please follow this podcast to make sure you don't miss a thing. Welcome to the first ever episode of Change Your Relationship with Food. We all know that the first pancake is always the dodgy one. So we'll get this first episode out of the way. And then hopefully over the next few months and years, I will get better and better at this. I'm going to cover subjects which I think are really useful because they're they're almost universal problems that most of the people that come to me, the clients that I see, the patients that I see, all present with a lot of the same worries around their relationship with food and particularly those people that have had a really long history of dieting. Decided to call this episode, Why Can't I Stick to a Diet? A pretty universal theme and I'm sure that we have all been there and done that. I'm going to try and keep it simple but I'm going to explain the reason why so many diets don't work and certainly don't work in the long term. For most of us, you know, we can lose a bit of weight initially, but the the universal story that I hear from my patients is, I can manage to lose a bit of weight, but I put that weight back on and some. And then we go on another diet and we lose some weight and we put that weight back on and some. It's something which uh, for some of us, you know, that this goes on for decades and decades. It's really useful to know why you can't stick to a diet, because trust me, very few people can. Also, it takes away that idea of of guilt or that sense of failure of why you couldn't stick to a diet, because we tend to be left in a very negative state once the diet finishes. You know, we've gone into it so positively, and when we can't maintain the diet or the diet fails, we feel so much worse about ourselves than we did in the beginning. And what we see is this cyclic behavior pattern occurring. So why can't we stick to a diet? And the answer is that as humans, we have a very strong survival instinct. When our body feels under threat, which it does when you're in a calorie deficit, your body will do everything it can to defend that threat. Our very survival depends on weight gain. So when we are a child, when we're a baby, when we're born, our survival depends on us gaining weight. And our weight is often measured very regularly in those first few months and years. Because if we don't gain weight, then we are failing to thrive. It's really important that weight gain happens. And that's what the body is set up to do. And it's really only within the last couple of generations, I suppose, that we've really had to look at weight loss as being something that that we as a population would desire. Prior to that, it wasn't it wasn't really necessary. Certainly, if we go back in in evolutionary terms, it wasn't necessary to lose weight. Why would we need to do that? Everybody was lean in those sort of hunter-gatherer type days. Everyone was lean and muscular um, because food was a lot more scarce. Now we have food everywhere. So our food environment has changed profoundly over the last couple of decades. Really, 
most the most marked change has been probably from the 80s onwards. We've got more food availability. You only have to walk down the street to see that there's food and there's drink everywhere. You also have to consider our lifestyle, which has changed quite dramatically over a few generations. We've become a society that values busyness really highly. Everybody is busy. We're too busy to have breakfast. We have to rush out the door. We're too busy to have lunch. So we sit at our desk and nibble on something while we're working. And then when we come home at the end of the day exhausted, we're too busy or exhausted to be able to cook a dinner. We have, as a society, demanded these quick and easy options. So food availability has certainly changed, but also the actual food industry has changed as well. The way that our food is manufactured, the way that our food is marketed to us in, in a way that it never was generations ago. So we've got all these things coming together and the net result for us as a society over the past 50 years or so has been weight gain. And a multi-billion dollar industry has sprung up to try and solve this problem. And the diets we go on look a little like this. First of all, we make the decision. We're going to go on a diet. Now, of course, we can't do that today because today isn't a Monday. And for some reason, some law somewhere was decreed years ago that diets start on a Monday. So let's just say for argument's sake, it's a Thursday. And we make this decision that we are going to go on a diet. We're going to tackle this and we're going to lose some weight. So what we tend to do, bearing in mind today is Thursday, is we spend the next, uh, well, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, eating everything in the house we possibly can because we don't want anything to be there on Monday that's going to throw us off our game. Generally, we eat everything we can eat in those days. We stuff all the food in. It's what I call the last supper because I see it a lot in, in patients. And we eat everything we can so that Monday morning, first thing, everything in the house is diet food. We've got a diet mindset and we are 100% going to succeed. So the motivation is high. We're really, really positive about this. We are going to do it this time, even though a little bit of our brain is going, well, you didn't do it the previous 52 times, but no, this time will be different. We're all prepped. We've got our plan for the day. Everything's in place. We've got our cottage cheese. We've got our cruskets. Uh, what else have we got? We've probably got some salad and some lean chicken, that sort of thing. All those real sort of stereotypical diet foods that we know are the ones that are going to make the difference. On the first day, the body can kind of cope with what's going on. We're in a bit of a calorie deficit, but our body doesn't really sort of worry about that too much. It's willing to let that go. So generally, the first day goes really, really well. Then into the second day, and again, we're still feeling strong. Now, probably even on day two, we're feeling a little bit better about ourselves. We're convinced that we can see the weight loss. It's happening this time. Motivation is still really, really high. So we're on day two and day two, we do well. We do everything we said we would do. We do the walk in the morning. We go to the gym if, if that's what we fancy. 
and we eat the way that we think we should eat that day and all is going fantastically well. Then it comes to day three and again our motivation is pretty high but by this time our body has started to get a few clues that something strange is going on. The calorie deficit the body is in has alerted the body to the fact that it may need to step in at some point and protect itself. Now at this stage the body's kind of happy to let a little bit of weight go. It's not panicked, it's it's all okay about that. But as time ticks on and the body realises this isn't just a little kind of one day event, that this is going on for a prolonged period of time, the body will start to put plans in place to make sure it's protected. In the early days, it's it happens with two hormones. So I'm going to simplify this. There's a lot more going on, but I want to keep it really, really simple. All I want you to know is uh, two hormones that you may not have heard of before. One is called ghrelin and the other one is called leptin. And try and think of these as opposites. I often think of of them both sitting on like a seesaw because when ghrelin is high, leptin is low, and when leptin is high, ghrelin is low. Ghrelin is produced primarily in our stomach. There's lots of production sites for it, but the main production site is in the top section of our stomach. And ghrelin is one of those indicators we have that we are hungry. If we're not getting enough food on board, our body increases production of ghrelin. And ghrelin is designed to to basically tell us, eat something, come on, it raises our hunger levels. It makes food look and smell more appealing, so it kind of turns us on to food. And it gives us those cravings, it tells our body, come on, you want something to eat. As the diet goes on, the body starts to increase these ghrelin levels so that we get to a stage where really food is becoming more and more irresistible. All those things we told ourselves that we wouldn't eat suddenly become much, much more appealing. Meanwhile, we've got another substance called leptin, and leptin is produced in our fat cells. And when our fat cell is comfortably full, so after we've had a meal and our fat cell is a little bit plumped up because it's taken on the excess energy that that meal's provided, it produces leptin to tell our body, well, a couple of things really. Firstly, stop eating. You've had enough. We're perfectly adequately supplied. You don't need to bring any more food on board. But also, Leptin tells the body, you've got energy on board now, you can afford to burn some. So in those first few days, you've got that subtle change between ghrelin getting a little bit higher, encouraging your body to eat, leptin's got a lot lower, so you're not getting those satiety signals that say to you, you've had enough food, you're okay. Another thing the body will start to do as time ticks on is it will start to slow your metabolic rate because it realises, well, hold on, there's not much food coming on board. I've got to use what I have got really, really wisely. So what we don't want to do is waste that energy. The body will want to retain it as much as possible. And when our metabolic rate drops, what tends to happen for us or the way we experience it is those dreaded plateaus. Now think about the way your brain works in these situations with with anything, not just with dieting. 
when we are putting in a, a maximum effort into something to change our behavior, but the rewards are really, really good, our brain will connect those two things together. So in the early days of a diet, we're making a big old effort, but you know we're feeling good, we're losing a bit of weight, we're feeling like this could be the time that changes everything. So our brain connects the two, maximum effort and maximum results. The two match very nicely. And under those situations, our brain is willing to continue with whatever task it's involved in. However, if we get a situation where the brain realizes, well, hold on, I'm putting in a maximum effort here, but I'm really not getting any results. The brain kind of thinks, well, what's the point? And that is our plateau. So what we, we get time and time again is when people enter a plateau, when weight loss stalls and the body goes, well, hold on a second, and it pulls back from releasing the excess weight that it's been storing and using it for its own energy, then we get in that rut. We get in that thing where we think, well, we're making so much effort and it's not being rewarded, nothing's happening. And then we come up with this genius idea well, what's the point? And this is what we call the I've blown it moment, because generally what the what's the point leads to is something like, well, what's the point? I may as well have that double choc latte coffee that I've been craving all week or something like that. So generally that mood, that drop in mood, that what's the point leads us to have something that we have been wanting to have through that whole period of what we now see as being deprivation. So we feel hard done by. We feel that our efforts are not being rewarded anymore and we deserve a reward. And generally, we turn to the one thing, remember, that is most desirable at that time because our ghrelin levels are very high and our leptin levels are very low. So the most desired thing then is going to be something food-based. Once we've had the I've blown it moment, we tend to follow that up with carrying on that behavior. Well, I've blown it now. I've had the double choc caramel latte with the extra puff of cream on top. I may as well give up today. I may as well have takeaway on the way home and I may as well buy that bottle of wine that I've been ignoring all week because I've blown it anyway I may as well just give up today and start again tomorrow but then what if tomorrow is a Tuesday well you know diets start on a Monday so what we tend to do then is go well look I'll wait until I feel re-motivated and when that collides with the next available Monday then we'll do the whole thing over again. And while we wait to be re-motivated, we go back to eating all those things that we've missed. The problem is at the moment, though, is that our metabolic rate is still in that zone where it's dropped down. So now we're eating all the things we used to eat. We're going back to our normal level of eating. Meanwhile, coupled with a metabolic rate that's dropped. So guess what? That results not only in weight gain back to where we were, but often that little bit extra that we regain after we've been on a diet, we've lost weight, weight goes back to where it was, and a couple of extra kilos on top just to kind of prevent us doing it again. There's a huge amount of academic evidence out there 
that proves to us that dieting, as in a calorie deficit, does not work long term. And yet, they're still very, very popular. So why is this when we know that 95% of people that go on a diet will regain their weight within five years? We know this. That statistic's been available for many, many years, and there's other research to back it up. Yet, and I've only got, unfortunately, USA figures here, the figures for what we spend in this industry are absolutely huge. 45 million people in the USA will go on a diet this year. 45 million people. And yet we know the failure rate when we go into it. And often we're evidence of the failure rate. We failed before, yet we sign up time and time again. We also know that those 45 million people will be spending $71 billion US this year on diets. That is a crazy amount of money when you think about it. So how do you do that? How do you get that many people to spend that much money on something that we all know won't work? Well, I suppose the answer is you make them scared of the alternative. What we call this is fat phobia. Fat phobia drives our societal weight loss ambitions and it will always exist until it becomes unprofitable. It's fat phobia that causes everybody to hate their bodies, regardless of size. Fat phobia does not cause fatness or thinness. It causes shame and self-hatred. And it supports a multi-billion dollar industry that is only too happy to sell you some so-called solution. So what can we do if we want to change our relationship with food? I suppose the first thing is we should start to think about how we combat fat phobia and I've come up with a few ideas of of ways you can start to do that everything starts small and remember anything that you try and do as far as changing your mindset or changing your relationship with food is going to be often opposing what you've believed for many many years so this is going to be slow don't expect this to be an overnight transformation it takes a long long while to kind of deprogram that dieting brain and to reprogram it in a more healthy way so the first thing we can do is start to combat this fat phobia that we find everywhere and some of it is very explicit you can see it you can feel it you can hear it and other types of fat phobia are much more subtle. Something that we're all guilty of, me included, back in the day, is complimenting other people on their weight loss. So please, if we say to somebody, wow, look at you, don't you look great, you've lost weight, the implication is that either they didn't look good beforehand, but we're actually reinforcing that belief that thin is good and fat is bad. We really don't need to say anything about anybody's weight. We don't need to speculate whether someone is too big or too small. We certainly don't need to comment on it. And we certainly don't need to comment on it to them either. Regardless of somebody's size, because it's not just fatness here. I know people who are very lean get often comments aimed at them about their weight as well. We don't need to comment on other people's weight. That's the first thing. The next thing is to stop diet talk. 
If we stop talking about the fact that we've got these weight loss ambitions and expecting everybody else to join in with us, then we're going to kind of diminish that whole culture of weight loss and dieting being part of who we are. And try as well to stop classifying food as being either good or bad. Another thing I hate that's come out recently is clean, clean eating, which implies that there's dirty eating as well, which basically goes back to the same premise, good and bad. It's just that they've relabeled it slightly differently to sell you a slightly different product. So food is not good or bad. Absolutely, there are some foods out there that are more nutritious than other foods, of course, but that doesn't make a food bad just because it's got a low nutritional value. Likewise, you know, food with a high nutritional value doesn't, it isn't good. We, we've got to look a little bit more about what food is appropriate for you at that time. If I'm really, really hungry, if I haven't eaten for a few hours and I really need something to get me through the rest of the day, an apple is an inappropriate food. It's simply not enough for me in that moment. Whereas if I've just had dinner, yeah, I probably don't need half a chocolate cake. That would probably be an inappropriate food at that time because it's inappropriate to my situation. It's not a bad food. It's just inappropriate in that moment. So try and think about food a little bit differently like that. It's not good. It's not bad. It's not a treat. Don't say you're being naughty if you've had something, because these these are the words that are springing into my brain because I hear them so much from the people that I deal with. That's what we've got to stop doing. But what can we start doing? First of all, with your body, start actually thinking about your body in terms of what your body can do, not just what it looks like. Bodies are amazing things. They They can do so much. They're so capable. Think of all the amazing things your body does. And you will find that your body is an incredible machine. And it's miraculous in a lot of ways. Start to look less at what it looks like and more at what it does. And realize the incredible work it does. And build up that sort of gratitude towards that. And also, when you perhaps are feeling bad about your body or bad about yourself, ask yourself who might be making money off you feeling that way. This tends to apply a lot recently to social media. I get a lot of patients who come to me and say, oh, I follow either this particular person or this particular group, and it just makes me feel bad about myself because they're all doing so well and they're all so beautiful and they say I have to do this, but I find it really difficult. You know, all, all these stories come out about these high expectations that are set from these influencers and, and people like that on social media. And if it's making you feel bad about you, stop, stop following those people, especially if they're making you feel bad and then they're offering you a product to make you feel better. Because remember, they've the one, they're the ones that have made you feel bad in the first place. Start to see that for what it is. Start to see how we're being played by all these marketing gurus who want to basically sell us a product. So look, that's my thoughts for today. I could go on, but I'm trying to keep it 
within, say, half an hour so that uh, you can listen to this on your journey to work or when you're out walking in the morning or something like that, walking the dog in the evening, you can listen to this for half an hour. So I'm keeping these short and sweet, but I really do need your feedback because what I cover in the future, I would like to make it as relevant to you as I possibly can. And even though I have patients that come to see me every week, and I can certainly take a lot of their thoughts and things that they say and bring them into this podcast um, to be able to answer questions and things like that, it would really help me hugely to get some feedback from you, the listeners, and tell me what you would like to hear. What questions do you ask? What things do you see out there all the time that annoy you about the, the diet industry or, or the food industry? And give me those uh, ideas and I will try very hard to incorporate them over the next few weeks and months and hopefully years. The other thing is it would help me hugely if you were to follow this podcast so that you do not miss out on anything. It's really important that we get that following in the early days and it costs you absolutely nothing to do, but it would be profoundly important to me and I would be really really grateful if you would do it get us off to a flying start and then I can guarantee to keep going and keep giving you the content that you desire I look forward to speaking to you next week with another topic thanks very much You can send your show ideas, questions or suggestions to info at acfeb.com. <laughs>